The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Few European commissioners have as busy an agenda as Margrethe Vastaya, the bloc's antitrust czar. As well as keeping the big US technology behemoths in check, she's responsible for shaping Europe's own digital future. She joined us to talk about everything from Joe Rogan and Spotify to telecoms m Give it a listen. This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv, a London stock exchange group business. Margrethe Vestaya has had a busy pandemic. As well as continuing to please US technology giants like Amazon and Apple, Europe's competition commissioner has had to scrutinise trillions of euros of government aid that has been granted to businesses since COVID-19 struck. Vestaya is also figuring out how to prosecute antitrust cases in a world where other jurisdictions like America and China are taking an increasingly direct approach themselves. She joined Breaking Views for a live virtual interview that formed part of our 2022 prediction series. We touched on Spotify, semiconductors, state aid, and also why she's not necessarily unhappy that some of the European Commission's cases have failed in court. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to another Reuters Breaking Views 2022 prediction event. Thank you very much for joining us. My name is Liam and I'm in the Reuters office in London. I'm joined by my colleague Lisa Juca, who is in Milan. Now, we have had some marvellous heavy hitters so far in this series. Um, We've had the boss of Morgan Stanley of Unicredit, a senior official at the Federal Reserve, and now we have another real heavyweight in uh, Margrethe Vestager, who is the Executive Vice President of the European Commission with responsibility for digital and competition policy. I don't think she needs much more of an introduction than that, so let's just get down to it. So, Ms. Vestager, welcome. Um, well, thank you I'd very like much. Start. It's great to thank be you. here. Brilliant. I'd like to start by asking a kind of broader question about the future of competition policy. Now, you've unveiled quite a big piece of legislation recently called the Digital Markets Act. It has a lot of rules about the way technology giants are supposed to behave. But how will it interact with the sort of cases we're used to seeing you pursue, which is much more of a kind of legalistic kind of Article 102 approach? Will the legislative and DG comp, how how will these processes work with, with each other in the future? I've learned a lot from the specific competition cases that uh, that I've been responsible for, you know, not one, not two, but three Google cases, a couple of Amazon cases, now another Google investigation, three Apple investigation, Facebook investigation. And, and what I have seen is that some of the issues, they are systemic. And when things are systemic, I think it's only right to call in regulation to work hand in hand with uh, with sort of the, the case-specific uh, approach that we have. And what we have learned and, and also inspired for some, from some uh, unfair trading practices in the marketplace, we built the Digital Markets Act, basically saying that uh, responsibility have to be placed where responsibility is due. So if you grow in power, uh, in market power, you also grow in responsibility. And this is why the Digital Markets Act will uh, designate what we call gatekeepers. So really big companies with a lot of market power. Uh, And if you're designated a gatekeeper, you will have a set of obligations and a set of prohibitions uh, that you will have to live up to in order for the market to be open and contestable. Uh, We will, of course, continue uh, to enforce the treaty. So we will have uh, cases of uh, unilateral behavior, we can have cases of, uh, of uh, more, more parties colluding. Probably they will be different uh, and we will learn more from that. And then we hope uh, that we can sort of refresh the Digital Markets Act as we learn uh, so that it will be future proof. 
So we're not going to see the sort of cases that you've pursued in recent years. We're not going to see them disappear and be replaced by kind of, you know, this person has violated the DMA. That stuff will still go on and they'll they'll kind of strengthen each other. Yeah, that's that's that will still go on. Um, also, you know, to some degree, of course, it is it is thought provoking that we sort of could continue uh, punish the same illegal behavior. Uh, because there ought to be a learning curve uh, in the marketplace, also the digital marketplace, that once something has been seen as as illegal, then, you know, everyone learns and, and the market moves on. If, if that is not the case, then, of course, uh, the regulation now comes in, designates uh, gatekeepers to say, well, this is the framework within which uh, you will lift your responsibility. And of course, uh, it will be a very important part of the enforcement of the Digital Markets Act to see if gatekeepers indeed do live up to the obligations, like, for instance, sharing data uh, and the prohibitions, you know, uh, not to uh, not to promote yourself compared to, to smaller competitors. Um, I wanted to ask you about something that's been in the news more recently. So there was a court case that sort of came to a conclusion of sorts last night, uh, last week involving Intel. Obviously, you weren't, you know, in office when this thing was launched. It's a very kind of ancient thing. But it's not the first time that we've seen a kind of competition, European Commission competition thing go through the courts. And the courts have actually disagreed with the original finding of the commission. It's happened quite a few times in recent years. I'm really interested to know what you've learned from those court losses and if it's going to change your approach to the way that you prosecute these cases. Um, I guess one theory is that if, you, if there's a greater probability of losing in court, that would increase your incentive to settle earlier on and accept remedies rather than pushing this through right through to the bitter end. Um, what, what are your reflections on that? Um, well, first and foremost, uh, as a citizen, you know, I'm, I'm really comforted and happy that I live in a union based on the rule of law that uh, authorities can lose. It's not a given that an authority is right, uh, because it's a real thing that you can go to court and you can challenge the finding of an authority uh, like ours when we do law enforcement. And that, I think, is, is exactly how things should work. Uh, in every case, uh, we should do our, our work so that we really do believe that it can stand up in court. but we cannot be so risk averse that we will only do cases where we think that there is almost a guarantee that we will win in court, because then we will not be able to do cases with a novel uh, interpretation uh, of the case law that may be prone for a, a novel market situation. Um, and, and if we want to win every time, uh, I think we will never give, give, get the feedback uh, from the courts uh, in in uh, in a way that will will establish a jurisprudence, which is of course important. Uh, we have the treaty, we have guidelines, we have uh, our regulations, but we also need the court uh, to tell us uh, how the court sees things. So it's uh, it's an opportunity to learn uh, how to push things forward, and and of course every time, uh, no matter if we win or, or we lose, we analyze uh, the ruling very very carefully in order to learn from it. Uh, and one of the things I've learned over these seven years, not, not being a lawyer myself, is that it's really important to be prudent on procedures, because it's quite rare that we lose on substance of a case. Uh, it's much more often that we lose on procedural points. 
so so of course uh, this is one of the things where we're very very specific uh, that things uh, must be done also procedurally by the book which is why i appreciate that we have you know the advice from our legal service uh, we have the independent hearing officers where parties can go uh, raise complaints if they find that things are not uh, sufficiently dealt with well, could you help our audience understand what you mean by procedural? When, when these cases have fallen down for procedural reasons, what, what kind of things are we talking about? Are there any examples? Um, well, it could be that, um, for instance, we have had uh, state aid cases that has fallen because the courts thought that we should have opened sort of a formal investigation instead of finding a solution uh, with the member state in question that we should have, you know, uh, more doubts. Uh, it could be issues of, uh, of access to file uh, not being handled in, uh, in what should be uh, the proper way. So, you know, it is sort of the procedural steps, uh, how to move things forward. Should this have been a supplementary statement of objection rather than a letter of fact? Um, you know, sometimes we have also cases during an investigation uh, questioning basically every step we take. So, so the procedure uh, takes up a, a lot of, uh, of our efforts, as it should, of course, because that is part of, of the party's right to defend themselves. Great. And so on to another kind of newsy topic. I want to ask you about one of the few big European tech platforms, Spotify, which is a Swedish music streamer. Um, it's obviously been in the news recently because it's got a, a fairly controversial podcast host called Joe Rogan, who some think has been spreading vaccine misinformation um, through his very large audience. Um, this this it has similarities to the types of complaints that the commission has had with some of the big American um, platforms. Um, so, I mean, do, do, do you see Spotify as, as coming squarely under um, the kind of, you know, the scope of the DMA, I guess, and a lot of the, it would fall within your purview, I guess. And, can you kind of assure the American groups that you're going to pursue one of Europe's own companies as aggressively as you as you would an American one? Oh, but our legislation doesn't know your your home country. Uh, it knows your market behavior in in the European market where we have jurisdiction. That's the important point. And and I think you'd actually see that that some U.S. companies they're more successful in Europe than in the U.S. Uh, when you look at their market share. So, so Europe is open for business, uh, no matter where you come from, as long as you're uh, following uh, the European rulebook. Uh, and that, of course, goes for, for Spotify as well. Uh, I think the issue in question here, it would be more uh, obvious for, for Spotify to be part of the code of conduct. We have strengthened the code of conduct where all big platforms have, have signed up in order to, to police uh, what is uh, unlawful or illegal uh, online to be, to be taken down. And of course, all of that to be strengthened with another piece of legislation called the Digital Services Act, which addresses how services should be provided uh, within the European Union and what responsibility you have as a platform to have a system on the one hand side to take down what is flagged to you to be illegal, while at the same time having a system where people can complain about to say, well, I, I may have hurt you, but this is not hate speech so this is actually legal for me to say it that balance to have those systems in place i think that would be more sort of the kind of uh, uh, of question uh, that could be asked for for spotify because uh, the digital services act would not only be for gatekeepers that would be also for 
for larger platforms uh, to oblige these uh, these different obligations. Okay, great. Um, so more kind of broader question. Um, you know, you, you have a reputation as being being very tough on on big tech. But you know, if you look at the track record, there, there is actually quite a few acquisitions by the really big U.S. players. Thinking of Google, Fitbit, Microsoft, Nuance. Uh, recently, Facebook, now called Meta, was allowed to buy a small company called Customer. Someone who's not following the antitrust kind of ins and outs very closely and isn't reading all these cases might be a bit surprised that you know Commissioner Vestager is is allowing these things to happen. Could you kind of explain? You know, what is it? Are you totally relaxed about these types of deals, or is it that your hands are tied? And you know, ideally, you might not like them to go ahead, but you don't have the the proper legal instruments or legal standing in order to stop them. Well, actually, in in these cases, we have uh, we have found solutions uh, to the concerns that we would have, uh, and we have gone into great detail. So, not only the the sort of the first uh, phase of our merger procedures, but you know, in depth uh, analysis. And if you take the Google Fitbit case, so so Fitbit, I think, is 4% uh, of the European market. So a very small player when it comes to uh, uh, health uh, tracking. And, and here we took uh, commitments to, to sort of solve the concerns that we had, because it could be a concern when a giant buys a, a health tracker that they would sort of foreclose that no one else could use the, the operating system, the Android operating system of the phone. So that was that concern was solved by saying we will keep an open API for other health trackers. Uh, another concern could be that, oh, wow, a powerful advertising you can do if you combine health data with other data that you have on people, their search pattern, uh, what else they do, local, localization. And that was solved by saying you need to put health data in a silo. They cannot be used for advertising purposes. So what we are doing is to try to find also novel solutions to competition problems uh, in order to be able for, for this market to move ahead so that, that we are balanced, that we do not see uh, a, a market consolidation uh, where there is no market consolidation, but enables uh, the market uh, to move on. And, and I think the Google Fitbit with a with a data silo, with an open API, uh, with the necessary, you know, belt and braces for that open API to be really open. Uh, I think it is possible to find a solution. And you don't worry that these, they're famously hard to monitor, these kind of behavioral remedies, right? And do you feel like, presumably you do, but do you feel like you have enough kind of a window into these companies after the fact? So, I mean, there was a famous example where Facebook told you it would do something, and then you subsequently found that they hadn't, um, kept their promises basically no that was uh, the Facebook case was uh, was a case of misleading information uh, they right. said they they wouldn't combine data uh, in a way that we thought they might have done and and for that misleading information uh, we find them uh, 110 uh, million euros misleading information is different from taking commitments that are legally binding on you and where there will be someone to monitor them and, and it's, I think it's important to, to look at, at solutions to, to competition problems more in a spectrum instead of just two boxes, either structural or behavioral. Because when you're in sort of data issues, well, uh, having a data silo is a semi-structural uh, remedy. Having real open APIs, you know, that will be tested every day when, when those who need an open API uh, will be trying to get it. So we get immediate feedback from the market if this doesn't work. 
Um, and there was there was an idea just speaking about you know where is the bar in clearing deals. There was an idea doing the rounds for a while about flipping the burden of proof in these kind of deals. I think it may have been in a big digital competition policy report that you commissioned um, by some experts. Um, this idea of saying you know actually if you want to do a deal you have to prove to us that it's not anti-competitive rather than us having to prove that it's competitive. Um, what 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 do you think of that idea? Well, I don't necessarily think that it, it's a bad idea, but you know, that is, that is de facto the back and forth that we have. Uh, when we look into a deal, we, we analyze it, uh, we look at what is the market situation. Uh, we may have uh, concerns that this will harm competition. Then, of course, the company can say, no, 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 there will be efficiencies, uh, it will not work as you say, you got the facts wrong. So, so there is this back and forth. And even if you turn the table, you know, we would still have to assess uh, the arguments. You so might end I, up having the same conversation anyway. Just with I, I don't. Point. I don't think it's a, it's a silver bullet. Bullet. Sticking on the big tech theme for a second. You know, for a really long time, I was writing about your cases, and it was kind of in a in a global vacuum almost. There wasn't. You you were really kind of, you know, doing something different. Um, that global competition and antitrust context has completely changed in the past few years. We've seen a huge kind of crackdown in China um, and perhaps more relevant for what you're doing. You've seen, you know, enormous amount of investigations launched out of the US. Um, how is that context going to change your job and the job of the people um, that do your job after you do it? Um, will you have to kind of communicate with these um, foreign regulators? Will there be some areas that you would leave to the Americans? Um, is anything off the table? Or do you just keep kind of, you know, going on blinkers as if nothing has changed? Well, first and foremost, this is a great development. When, when we don't have a global competition law, uh, we don't have global competition law enforcement. But if you are to, to make sure that consumers all over this planet has the benefit of competitive markets, well, then, of course, we, we need a lot of jurisdictions to do the uh, to do things that that supplement and, and complement uh, one another. So uh, I think that if, when I draw sort of my map, you know, I'm, I have a map, I put a little red uh, dot uh, when another investigation is opening by, uh, by the Australians, by the South Koreans, by the Canadians, by the Americans, uh, by the South Africans, uh, also here in Europe, uh, by the Italians or, or the Germans, um, I say, we're getting there. Because the market situation is is different in different jurisdictions, we have slightly different uh, legislation in in different jurisdictions, but but we're in it with the same mission to keep markets open, contestable. That there's a drive for for innovation, for for affordable prices, um, and and I of course it changes how we work, uh, and it changes also our discussions uh, from the very first days. Um, I have been discussing our cases with uh, with colleagues all over the planet and and uh, the better way was we have, of course, the more we can exchange and learn from one another, which I think is beneficial, not only for us as law enforcers, but also for the businesses uh, in question uh, so that there is a, a learning uh, from from everyone. So so, of course, it changes, but we still have the obligation in our jurisdiction uh, to make sure that we vigilantly uh, apply uh, competition law. You, you wouldn't not pursue something because you saw the Americans pursuing a similar case, for example. 
but but it's really difficult to answer in uh, in general uh, because it would depend on on the market situation, and and that is that is really tricky to say sort of uh, as a as a general um, uh, remark. Um, and just speaking of this kind of global you know patchwork of investigations, I mean, is there a danger of you know maybe it'd be more efficient if everyone moved in lockstep and you sort of have this kind of slightly messy picture sometimes where it's kind of hard to you know some, someone's doing something on you know whatever app store fees over there and someone else is thinking more you know big picture about whether so and so should be broken up um do you worry about that kind of like legal fragmentation i guess of, of antitrust and while i'm sure you welcome the fact that more regulators are like-minded now um is there a downside in that that possible kind of you know everyone's doing something different well, I think uh, I think we are very far from over enforcement. Uh, I think we are just in the process of correcting under enforcement, um, because of course we have all had to to learn uh, about digital markets, uh, how data works. Uh, you know, um, take our, our sort of traditional theories of harm, update those to see what is really going on in this marketplace. And, and I don't see it as fragmentation. Actually, I see it as a, as a puzzle uh, coming together to say that with different market situations, uh, there is a coming together of a, of a more aligned uh, global approach to what should be uh, the rules of the game in, in more and more digitalized markets. And, and it's really important that it happens now when, when everything digitalizes. So you have the digitization uh, outside of what was sort of natively digital in, in agriculture and in transport and in, in energy. Uh, of course, it had it in, in finance for, for a long time. Uh, it's really important that competition authorities is then, you know, uh, up to speed. Uh, and I think here we are, we are helping each other and we're learning from one another. That's great. Um, I just want to ask you a little bit about something a bit closer to industrial policy, which I know kind of touches on your digital remit. Um, you know, there's you often hear, you know, it's a problem that Europe doesn't have many hundred billion dollar tech companies. Um, what, what do you think about that? I mean, every day we use American software, which runs on American design chips and devices that are made in Asia. Um, but the blocks kind of the premise of the blocks industrial policy is almost that we need to change this. So how are Europeans losing from the status quo? Well, you know, sort of on a day-to-day -day basis, um, we get uh, uh, excellent products uh, and, and prices have come down on, uh, on hardware uh, to the degree that many, many people can afford it. Uh, that is what has happened over the last 10, 15 years where you know uh, digitization was was exclusively exclusively for the few who could afford it um it was it was tricky it was unapproachable to the situation today where you know smartphones is on the hands in the hands of of everyone uh you have a lot of sort of much more intuitive uh, systems for people to use you have a completely different level of convenience in your daily life uh, because of technology. And, and I don't think that could have happened without the market dynamics that we have seen over the last uh, 15 to 10, 10 to 15 years. So 
I think it's it's a different thing that is at stake here, and and we have seen it uh, during the pandemic uh, and with the follow-on uh, chip shortage. That that in in Europe we have a wish of having you know a, a bigger footprint in in the global value chain when it comes to technology, not to exclude anyone, but to be a much more assertive part of it. Uh, because important assets are, are held in Europe in the chips industry, uh, you know world-class class uh, research uh, and also uh, essential uh, chip producing machines uh, are produced uh, in Europe to be sort of more assertive about what we would do but still you know take what is the best of, uh, of all worlds while establishing you know coalitions uh, so that we can prevent a chip shortage like the one we had and at the same time enabling what is our goal when it comes to industrial policy which is that European industry is leading when it comes to digitization and uh, and uh, and fighting climate change. Great. Um, I'm going to hand over to Lisa, maybe after one or two more questions. So if anyone has any more um, questions, do do submit them. Can I ask you about state aid during the pandemic? Um, obviously, you sort of paused a lot of the restrictions for a few years to allow governments to kind of help companies through this quite extraordinary situation you're kind of phasing out these kind of temporary state aid things you laid out the kind of almost like a tapering where i think up to the middle of 2022 and then there'll be a slightly different regime for six months or so but you know even since you since i read that back in november you've seen you know we've had a new variant flare up who knows maybe there'll be another one you know if this thing becomes if we have a cycle of you know strict lockdowns new variants what does what does state aid policy look like in that scenario when we have kind of you know, recurrent flare-ups. I mean, is there such thing as a kind of going back to normal or would you support a further extension if, if that was necessary? Well, first and foremost, I, I think uh, the teams who have been uh, taken uh, with us in the Commission, uh, more than 900 decisions uh, on state aid would be very sad uh, if they heard you say that it has been paused because uh, we have used the flexibility uh, that we have uh, in the treaty when we have a crisis like this to enable member states to give uh, absolutely necessary support when the state asks you to close your door, uh, basically to hypernate. Uh, of course, uh, they should also support you through this hypernation in order for healthy companies uh, to survive. But the reason why we are still doing state aid control is to make sure that aid is not given in an unbalanced manner so that someone can just outspend others because then we would you know wake up after the pandemic after this sort of hibernation to completely fragmented uh, single market so uh, we had taken many 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 decisions to make sure that everyone is is online second we have been following uh, what kind of, of budget are we dealing with here and, and I think for, for the European business community, it is, uh, it is really good uh, that state, to see that state has been willing to step up support. Uh, I think the total budget of, uh, of approved aid is, uh, is more than 3 trillion uh, euros. And outside of that comes, you know, wage support and, and all, all kind of stuff. So, so that is the budget. That's the willingness to give support. But the situation has not been as bad as the budget would reflect. Uh, so actually, I think basically uh, no more than a third 
of this budget has been used, which means that actually member states have not outspent each other. So we do think that we have a functioning single market to help us recover uh, from the crisis. And I think you see it because you have seen a very strong sort of rebounds uh, in the European economy over the last year. Interesting. Quite, quite right to pull me up on the word pause. Absolutely not a pause. It's just, um, it's just, you know, yeah. they, they've been working from home, the teams, and they have been, you know, incredibly, uh, you know, vigilant and productive in order to make sure that, you know, aid could get out there uh, where it was needed. So I, I just I really admire uh, the work mm. that's been done. No, quite right. I feel like I get a, a release in my inbox every other day with a, <laughs> a new kind of status. Just I, I want to just press you on that point about the level playing field, though. Because, I mean, you mentioned the three trillion figure, which just to put it into context with the audience, I think was the kind of the notional possible amount of state aid that could have been granted based on member states, kind of the leeway they'd given themselves in the budget. Um, so it's kind of difficult to, to you know, use those numbers. But I mean, I was just doing a, a quick exercise based on some figures from the commission um, where based on that three trillion, it, it looked like Germany, France, Italy and Spain were 84 percent of that roughly. Um, now, as you say, not all of that three trillion was used, but you know there are other studies that suggest that Germany and France have accounted for an outsized proportion relative to GDP. Um, particularly Germany, that stand to reason they have a lot of fiscal space in order to help companies. Um, when you look at the numbers, do you, do, you, do, you, do you really feel confident that there isn't a um, kind of there hasn't been some people outspending each other here? Well, of course, we will keep following because I don't think one should be, be confident uh, in this matters also because the, the pandemic is not completely over, even though my own country, Denmark, as, as from today, have seized every restriction. Um, but what we have seen when we look at, at the aid actually paid out, uh, based on the numbers from the member states themselves, uh, Germany is not in the lead. Uh, I, think, uh, I think Italy is in the lead with France uh, close by. Yeah. And, but Spain is pretty big as well. That being said, you're right to say that the bigger countries, they have spent more than smaller countries. Um, but, but so far still, we don't, we don't see big discrepancies. And, and um, since, you know, European industry is indeed European, uh, having, you know, your customers in, in one maybe bigger member state being in good shape also helps you if you're uh, the supplier uh, to that customer. So, so aid given in, in one uh, member state may actually also indirectly help others because it, it makes sure that the, the value chains and supply chains, that, that they stay uh, dynamic uh, and in full function. That's great. Thank you. Um, I am going to hand over to Lisa now, who's been scrutinizing the audience questions and may have some of her own as well. Um, Lisa, take it away. Yes, thank you, Liam. Um, so there's been a few questions coming through and a few more uh, also appearing in my inbox. But I'd like uh, by Vice President to start, if I, if I can, on, on a topic that we haven't discussed yet. And this is uh, competition policy in telecommunication, in the telecommunication sector. Um, so what is the Commissioner's view on further consolidation? I mean, in the past, uh, the Brussels has been opposed to in-country consolidation that would reduce um, service providers from four to three. Has that view changed, particularly after the O2 Hutchinson uh, judgment? We do not do magic numbers. 
we do market analysis and we have seen a lot of sort of um, consolidation from fixed to mobile to, to fiber uh, coming together. Where we get sort of a bit uh, nervous is if we see that that there will be very limited choice uh, for people within a national market because that sort of thing is, is one of the real pain points uh, of the European single market that when it comes to telcos, the market are still quite national due to regulatory barriers, uh, culture, habit. Uh, it's quite rare that people would have a subscription uh, from a supplier in, in a neighboring market. So, so we would very much want to have, you know, sort of pan-European consolidation uh, to see if, if there can be a push for a more European uh, market when it comes to, to the telcos, uh, because that, I think, would, would give that kind of muscle uh, that is indeed needed for the investment uh, that is also uh, prone to happen uh, in the telco industry, for instance, in, in 5D. But I mean, if I can just do a follow up to this, I mean, I take your point uh, that, you know, the, the sector is still very much uh, divided along national lines. But I mean, wouldn't be wouldn't it be possible to consider, um, you know, slightly more consolidation at a point in time where these telecom providers have to spend a lot to upgrade their networks and, you know, uh, extend the use of fiber. And, you know, they've also spent quite a lot on 5G technology. So wouldn't that be a fair trade-off in a way? I mean, the consumers get the new technology, but, you know, the um, the operators are able to, to merge so that they can sustain the cost of that development. Well, one of the things that has been, been really tricky uh, is that, so far, you know, our experience still holds true that it's it's competition that pushes for investment rather than consolidation pushing for investment. Uh, what we have done, because obviously uh, I take part of your point, uh, is for instance to try to encourage member states to be, do, you know, sort of beauty contest uh, when new frequencies are, are released uh, for 5G. So instead of asking how much will you pay me, asking how fast and how broad will you deploy uh, this frequency uh, in order for the funding to remain in, in the companies uh, winning the auctions. On that, we have not been very successful, but that would be one of the ways actually uh, to have your cake and eat it, uh, to have competition as a driver uh, for more investment, while for, for some uh, funds still to remain in the companies actually having uh, the frequencies uh, and, and having to do the investment. I understand. Uh, thanks. Thanks for this explanation. Um, just maybe moving on to, to another topic. I mean, there's also some viewers who are asking you your view on, on a very interesting legal case, and that's the one that involves Epic and Apple in the United States. So are there any uh, conclusions um, or insights that can be drawn, you know, from that uh, situation which is still alive, you know, that that could be of interest to Europe? Well, it, it is indeed still alive uh, since both parties have uh, have appealed the, the judgment. Um, we follow it uh, with uh, with interest uh, because it is indeed important to see well, how this uh, both the question of hosting uh, more uh, app stores uh, can be dealt with. Uh, sort of the, the payment systems uh, to do so, uh, 
uh, you will know that we have uh, we have our own uh, cases when it comes to this, both a general case on on the Apple App Store, uh, the Spotify case uh, where where Apple have a uh, an app competing uh, on music streaming uh, and their app does not have to pay uh, the fee uh, and they don't have uh, the rules that they cannot, you know, tell people that I could actually get the subscription cheaper uh, if they took uh, another venue. So we follow this with great interest. Um, and last but not least, uh, we will be now in the negotiations of the Digital Markets Act that would uh, oblige you uh to be open for for more uh, app stores uh than your own if you're an, an operating system um uh, supplier so so we we look with great interest of uh, of the u.s developments but of course now uh, it's difficult to say because the appeal will now be be ongoing from uh, from both sides and understood understood obviously still a live case um maybe uh, also touching on a slightly different topic and this is the issue relating to the global corporate tax which was finally agreed you know after long discussions um by OECD member states. So is that somehow, I mean, two questions may be linked to this topic. I mean, has the commission carried out an evaluation of how that would impact the European Union, for instance? I mean, the commission has gone after very aggressive tax deals, you know, especially with tax giants, who we remember uh, one in um, Ireland, just to mention one. So, you know, is there a, an assessment of how, you know, this minimum tax changes things um, for Europe's coffers. And, and the second question linked to that is, does it mean that maybe we don't need digital taxes anymore because we have the global minimum tax? Um, we've been really active uh, in order to get to this uh, global compromise. Uh, and you know, there are two sides to it. Uh, one is this 15% uh, uh, minimum effective taxation and I think the word effective is really important here uh, and the second which is sort of the distribution of, of taxing rights uh, in different sort of uh, tranches uh, depending on, on company size and, and, and both these sides together would solve a, a lot of things uh, and, and most obviously the sense that, that taxation should be more fair uh, that bigger companies should not escape uh, contributing to the countries where they where they do their business and and create value, and to sort of also put a limit uh, to really aggressive uh, tax competition. Uh, so we are you know really really stern supporters uh, of this compromise and will do what we can uh, to implement it for a sense of uh, of fairness uh, when it comes to taxation. Uh, I don't know if uh, if colleagues have uh, have calculated uh, what it would bring to to EU uh, coffers or member states uh, coffers, um, but but I consider it a, a great progress. I think it's a, an historic deal, uh, and of course uh, it would be even better if it was uh, also globally implemented. Indeed, and on the digital tax, I mean, just you know, my my second question on whether. The, the global corporate tax, somehow, the minimum uh, corporate tax somehow takes off the shine or the need, let's say, to have digital taxes? Uh, I think to, to a very large uh, degree, you know, some member states uh, had indeed uh, digital taxes and, and it, is, uh, it is part of the agreement uh, to seize uh, these taxes 
uh, once uh, once these uh, taxes have been been implemented. So I think there is a balancing thing here. Uh, we have, but that's just a, a separate uh, consideration, um, a consideration of uh, of own income uh, for the European Union. Um, and, and we made uh, two proposals, but well, we have uh, paused all our considerations about a digital levy, which is a, a different uh, kind of tax, uh, because now uh, actually we might be able uh, to implement this global compromise and, and that would indeed be really, really good. Indeed, thank you. Um, so maybe, maybe just uh, you know, another question or two as we're sort of getting to the, the end of our conversation. Um, there's a there's a lot of interest also in the consolidation. I mean, from from our views in the consolidation that we're seeing in the gaming interest uh, industry. I mean, the latest Microsoft deal is of course um, what people have in mind. Um, is that something that will come under your radar screen? I mean, clearly you have explained to us that. Uh, you know, the, the Commission doesn't look like the, as the home base of the companies involved. I mean, is, is that something the Commission will review and how do you assess, let's say, consolidation in the video gaming industry? Well, um, I don't know, I don't think we know if it will be directly uh, notifiable to us. Um, that being said, in, in general, um, uh, we work with member states in order to be able to see uh, transactions that do not meet our sort of our thresholds uh, for turnover. Um, and an example uh, uh, of that would be uh, the Facebook customer that was referred to us. Um, so, so you, you know, we, we try to broaden our view to see more deals uh, in order to, to see what is happening uh, uh, in these markets. We will, we will have no sort of specific uh, view of, uh, of the gaming industry. We want competition between, uh, between gaming platforms uh, as well as in, as in any other markets. Um, but find it, of course, very interesting because uh, gaming is, uh, is probably what is getting closer and closer to what is a, a real metaverse where you can have a, a, a presence. So um, both from sort of a, a market consolidation uh, point of view and, and from a, a learning point of view about conditions of, of the metaverse, uh, these are very interesting developments. Indeed, indeed, thank you. Um, so we're getting close to the end. Maybe a final question again, you know, which came from from the readers. Um, we have seen action, obviously, from the European Commission against some of these big tech companies, but individual EU states have also gone um, against. Uh, I mean, we, we had a recent case in Italy against Amazon, which was started. Germany, I think the Trust Authority mm. there uh, are investigating Apple um, and the Apple Store in particular. So, uh, how should we view? I mean, you know, is is, is this action coordinated by the the European Commission? I, I do understand that there are uh, you know slight legal differences between the countries, but you know, uh, isn't there a risk that if this is not coordinated, then there are mixed messages in a way? Um, given to, to consumers, you know, and to everyone who's working in these segments. Now, this is a, this is a very good point. Um, we have always uh, encouraged uh, strong national competition uh, authorities uh, because we work uh, together to enforce European competition law. Actually, I think in, in numbers, 85% uh, of decisions uh, within sort of or based on European competition law is taken by national competition authorities. Uh, 
<laughs> and uh, and in the last mandate, we passed uh, legislation actually to strengthen uh, national competition authorities so that every citizen in Europe would have sort of the same uh, minimum when it comes to strength of their national competition authorities to, to police the market. So we, we actually, we really appreciate the strengths of, uh, of authorities. And we have a system uh, to coordinate uh, what we're doing because in some member states, they, on top of, of European competition law, they also have national specificities. Uh, and here, of course, it's really important that, uh, that we are well coordinated. And for instance, in, in the Italian uh, Amazon case, we have an, an Amazon case, which is not just about uh, distribution of, uh, of goods, but also uh, has a data side uh, to it. But we have then carved out uh, sort of the Italian part of, uh, of the European market uh, in order to make sure that they could do their case, uh, but also that or in all fairness, uh, that we would not investigate Amazon behavior uh, also in, in the Italian market uh, when the Italian authorities were doing it. I see. Okay, well, thank you for this explanation. I, I think on this note, I'm going to give back the floor to my colleague, Liam. Thank you very much, Lisa, and thanks for your questions, audience members. Um, yeah, so I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, I just want to say thank you very much for your time, Commissioner Vestager. It's really good to hear your thoughts. Well, and, um, it, it was my it was my pleasure. You know, it's uh, it's really encouraging uh, because competition law enforcement and and competition in in the marketplace is is one of the you know solutions to digitization to to fighting uh, climate change, but of course uh, also to have uh, resilient supply chains so that if if one supplier has an issue, then you can turn to someone else. So so it's indeed a pleasure to discuss it with you. Thank you very much. See you soon. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum and Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.